Refi Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fivespan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune into Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fire on the Bank. Uh, super excited this week to have Peter Burridge, who formerly was a uh, senior executive at HyperWallet. Reese, most, more recently, I guess, was at PayPal in the kind of Braintree world. Previous to that, I ran at least a market for, for TravelX, which is one of the world's largest non-bank financial institutions. And uh, previous to that, I think, cut his teeth in the hard, cold world of the Oracle sales organization. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Appreciate appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Did I leave anything out in describing it? No. It, it was sort of interesting, actually, because I, I feel like, you know, when you look at sort of banking today, the, the technology explosion that happened early 2000s and, you know, all of that time, we sort of went from anticipating that there'd be a lot of changes in the uh, in certain sectors as a result of it. Nothing really has changed in banking, unfortunately. There's a lot of new players that are trying to pick up the slack from what they're not providing. But I guess I look at my my career and, and sort of I got the... I got the payments financial sort of bug at TravelX and, you know, it was uh, running the world's largest non-bank at the time was sort of interesting because I learned that people actually sort of sending money around the world, you actually have to send money to someone else who then send it to the person that you ultimately wanted to send it to, which seems sort of ridiculous that two payments would be involved to make one. But there you go. But there's a lot changed in that space and, and... continues to change and a lot of the people that are leading that change are that you know they don't have bank in their title totally makes sense getting to the heart of the conversation if you were going to run your bank and i think in your sense this might be broader than that if you were going to run all banks what is it that you would really focus on and lean into yeah i mean you you we've had this sort of conversation a couple of times yeah look i mean what's the definition of a bank a bank is a financial institution licensed to receive deposits and make loans. And so, you know, I don't have any problem with the data and everything associated with, you know, positing money with a, with a bank and having them loan it. And we've even seen in COVID where, post-COVID, where governments have been pushing money out and trying to encourage people to borrow money to save their businesses. The banks are pushing them through the same old, you know, algorithm algorithms that they work for. I think part of part of the challenge is it's extremely difficult to get a bank license. And so, you know, they want to obviously, you know, build other services associated with, you know, doing loans. But they haven't innovated. And so, you know, what we've seen is this massive industry built around e commerce and global e commerce and you know, basically anything that touches money that the banks aren't doing. How do I get access to internet banking to pay my bills? Well, internet banking doesn't exist. We send them a check. And it's sort of funny, right? Whereas you go to the UK and the word check doesn't exist anymore. So you've got, you've got all this sort of disparity in around how things do. And this lack of service has given rise to 
you know, the FX companies, the Western unions, the TravelX, Cambridge, the AFXs, the Ascendant FXs, all of them, you know, the Currency Direct, and you can endless supply of these businesses. But they, they're just fulfilling a, a small portion of sort of the lack of capability by the banks. So, so there's definitely a, a set of services that I would be building under you know, a different bank charter, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to sort of separate sort of the bank charter from loans and deposit. I think that's super interesting. And it, it the thing that strikes me about what you're saying in the like, you know, kind of this historical lens of banks, there's I think there's two dimensions to this. One is the majority of the regulatory burden is around the idea that you should safely hold deposits and you should responsibly lend that out and and, and help with interest rates and my supply. And there's here's your first big book of rules, right? That's a million pages thick for that. Over time, as like the Glass-Steagall type things have eroded in different markets and the bank gets the wealth arm and the investment banking arm, you get the equivalent regulatory book of, you know, here's your next thousand pages. So now you live in a world all of a sudden with the rise of e-com and this globalization of business and the digitization of the whole world where the whole point of being a bank is maybe not about safely storing and lending money. It's really about moving money. And, and so, I mean, going back to your big idea about a regulatory footprint that would support this very transactional money movement type of a bank, do you think that that's even what the banks themselves would need? So, I mean, outside of, I think, Chase is co- you know competitive with the upstarts in that market, most banks don't have that integrated kind of, you know, transactional business meant for these, you know, for this particular vertical market, right? But would that help if you just... If you're Bank of America, you just slice off a division that does just this and, and had a different regulatory framework and different different everything? Well, I think I think to do that, the banks need to sort of be either entering into a different type of partnership with one another where, you know, the responsibilities are very clear on who owns the AML responsibility. Who, you know, are you really just a rail or are you putting, you know, putting people on the rails, right? And so holding the bank responsible for everything is just all it's done is inhibited innovation. Um, and so, you know, to me, when you when you go back to, can the banks pivot and do this stuff? Well, they have to, they either have to have a different relationship or they have to be global. And, you know, HSBC and those sort of organizations used to be, and City used to be sort of the global banks and, you know, these new entities need to be able to, you know, go and you, you need more than one country to, to agree to this because, you know, they, need, they all need to sort of share the same type of license structure so it can happen. Otherwise, you're, you're a bank in one jurisdiction and a money services business in another. Well, and there's, and there's two conversations here, too, about that. But let's go. I just wanted to ask this question at a high level first. So do you have an alternative vision for correspondent banking like is there a model that could better work that way to to more effectively interlace the global network of banks well i think you know you you you're, you've seen you, you've seen part of it in a in a business like hyperwallet for payout you've seen part of it in businesses like braintree stripe Ardian, right and and you've seen part of it in the neo banks that have been set up that are then domestic or, or regional at best, you know? So, 
it's sort of putting all of that together under one regulatory framework is really that doesn't include making loans. Um, no, to, that to, to, totally makes sense. And then I was just was was trying to Google this live, but the I, I remember I was at a conference and the chief lobbyist for um, a group, and I can't, you know, these lobby groups always have catchy acronyms, but effectively it was Google and Apple and Facebook's banking related lobby group, right? And and kind of big tech's face of banking. And for everybody that's like, you know, Google wants to be a bank. I think to your point, why would anybody really want to be a bank, right? It's a burden and there's a lot of there's a lot of stick that comes with all the carrots. But all they really wanted was, and what I think it highlights, which you'll know intimately, is even just how, regardless of the world correspondent banking network, the United States is effectively 50 countries when it comes to payment, right? And so what they really want is a single money transmitter accreditation, so almost like your transactional bank, just to operate in the United States. Yeah, totally. But but you know the the go back to the sort of the the Ubers, the Airbnbs, and things like that. You know they've taken very different approaches to licensing, right? Remember that you know they're carrying they're holding money that doesn't belong to them. So the first thing is who's you know when you when you look at sort of banking and these associated services the cost of acquisition client acquisition is the first thing that you know all the all the investment guys are going to look at then they're going to look to look at the lifetime value of those clients and when you've when you've had banks sort of being regulated for deposits and loans well they've they've decided to pick and choose who they bank and so the net result of it means that 20% of the US citizens don't have a bank account. So what do they have? Well, they have a prepaid card and they have a, you know, they have this and that that's probably just prepaid actually. And they use and they use Western Union and that, you know, it's just so so the sort of the system hasn't helped everyone participate because the first thing you have to have to play is a bank account. And and then, and this is where I sort of pivot into poacher versus gamekeeper because, you know, then the banks are going to say, you know, the banks are start saying, well, we're not going to bank you because you're an adult star, or, you know, you're you're you know, an ANZ down here, you know, have said, well, we're not going to bank anyone who hasn't got a carbon neutral plan by 2021, and we're going to turn everyone off by 2025 or whatever. The, don't quote me on the days, but dates, but basically they are then well what gives them the right to to you know decide who should have a bank account because this is what they're saying right i mean they're saying this is carbon neutral i don't want to bank you but but we can't but then but they have they're not just like a corporate that can decide that we're not going to build you a house or we're not going to sell you a car they're a bank and they're part of the government's you know, implementation of policy. They, they get, it's almost sort of virtue signaling, right? And then they get it to be a big part of controlling, you know, money laundering and those sort of things. But they're also the guys that have been caught with their hands in the till. Um, and so, you know, when when you look at some of the the the, the regs now, you know, my eighty two year old mother nearly had her bank accounts closed from a bank she's banked with for 60 years 
because and she, she you know she she called me and like they, they want a WA Ben from me from from her she's never been to the US she's been on holiday there right well WA Ben is a US tax thing why is the bank asking for that stuff and so I, I you know the, the, if, if if I was sort of gonna sort of have have the perfect scenario there'd be a transactional bank license where you could hold funds for the benefit of the corporate and how they want to manage their currency exposures or just run their business, right? Because some people don't want to send you money for you to make money, to, to make payments. They just want you to pull the funds. You know, there's all this, you know, do they want an on-balance sheet or off-balance sheet? So there's all these sort of things that go to the services that, that these institutions provide. You put a hybrid together of RD and HyperWallet and some of the neobank stuff for businesses and consumers, and you've got a pretty cool set of services. You add some bill payment on top of it, so I can pay all the bills and everything comes into my phone, and, and it's a very, very cool service. But, but the other side of it is who's going to carry the, who's going to carry the, 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 the regulatory burden? I think the regulatory burden on those sort of services should be with the service provider, right? So all the AML, all that, you know, stuff needs to be with the organisation onboarding the client, whereas the banks should be getting a leave pass on that and uh, focusing on their their loan and and deposit profile. I would love to read the maybe not the actual agreement, but the for dummies version of whatever Stripe and Goldman Sachs agreement is on this uh, Stripe Treasury offering because it's like. And again, that's not a, I don't think any of the innovation in that offering is necessarily a technological innovation like the APIs and all that is secondary. Like they had to come down to brass tacks for, well, Stripe is going to pay out to all of Shopify's 8 million global merchants, like on Goldman Sachs's, you know, payment rail access. And like that, that wouldn't be easy to negotiate, I imagine. You, you got to remember that Stripe is just a foreign exchange company in disguise. Because you know, if you're a if you're a if you're running a global business, the thing you really want is if you're accepting credit cards offshore, you want local auth rates and local interchange, right? That's the holy grail, right, around the world. But what you're getting is you're getting to present in any currency. And then you get into and you settle in a finite list, right? So a much smaller list. So it really depends on who Stripe's working with from the acquiring bank perspective in country. So if you're working, so if they're working, say, with Wells Fargo or someone like that in the US, then they might only they might own they might, you know, I know Braintree was like this, they would only settle in US dollars. You could have a UK credit UK consumer buying using their buying in euros, sorry, in the UK, buying in sterling, and you want to receive the sterling. If you're the merchant, you want to receive the sterling because you might have a liability in sterling, right? But what Stripe's going to do is flip you into, well, Braintree would have flipped you into US dollars. Then you have to flip that back to sterling. And that's why those guys will make money because they're all, they're all controlling the number of settlement currencies. So I get that game in which maybe dive into that because I think that's a, there's a massive business opportunity there in general is something banks should be in. But more specifically, I never this hadn't occurred to me before. If you're a merchant using one of those 
e-commerce focused merchant acquirers. They got their kind of two ninety nine plus thirty you know cent rack rate. If I swipe a European credit card where the interchange burden is less, they still charge you the you know the North American kind of accept cost or acceptance because that's a, a that's a great racket too. I never thought about that. Well, your 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 depends on where your merchant account is, right? If your merchant account, it, it takes the jurisdiction where you have set up, right? And remember, to get a merchant account, you have to have a bank account in that jurisdiction too. So you have to, your entity and bank account has to be in Australia if you want an Australian merchant account. But if I'm a Canadian merchant with a Canadian Stripe account or Shop Pay account or whatever, and I accept a European credit card, that's actually sweet sweet business for. For the merchant uh, acquirer, so for the acquirer. So, so you as the merchant are always going to get Canadian dollars, unless the unless the acquirers, the acquiring bank, will let you settle in more. So, for example, um, NAB does quite a lot of acquiring for Braintree and Stripe and others in Australia, and they will let you settle in the majors right in Australia. But obviously, if you've got consumer clients or, or customers throughout asia that's not going to help you yeah no to totally but to, i mean to sum this and maybe just to tie a bow on this part of the conversation i think well i'm going to introduce a new idea and then paraphrase it so i mean obviously you started your career and you know you're selling the massive erp implementation right for oracle and there's this big business system that's kind of the first act of this the second act is like selfishly by span right our whole thing is that well, if you're the corporate and you've made that investment, then none of that stuff works well with banking, right? And so that's why Fivespan exists is to solve that. The next act here is what where I think Stripe and Addy and Braintree get is the real ERP, right? The, the closest you can get to the customer and the action and where it's going to happen, where the cascade of financial transactions is, is in like these e-commerce platforms, right? Or in the technology product itself, because you you know, you're collecting every day this money and wherever you have to pay it out to these other people, you hold the flow, you have all these cross currency liquidity needs. Like it's that merchant services account and it's the golden book of data on, on credit worthiness in the future, right? On the new business model. That's as close to the source of where you'd want to be in the future. Like if you were a bank, that is literally what you would want is to be in that game. Like that's the the, that's the answer key to the whole test. One thousand percent agree. And and you know you've even you've even seen the you know you look at the acquirers the those acquirers that have been heavy POS based they really haven't pivoted to the online. There's been a whole new group of them. You know the whole new online acquirers have all kind of built their you know fraud systems and you know online onboarding and and sanction screening and all these sort of things as part of their core capability so you just can't be a, a pos vendor and rock up and have this new online business but ultimately as the merchant you want to be able to do offline and online one well, the thing about the pause acquiring business is there's no there's no like net dollar retention growth right like if you sign up the corner store the corner store has the same turnover every year, plus or minus 5%, right? Whereas these online acquiring businesses, like you, you know, you're going to get 20 customers and I see them go bankrupt and then one of them is Shopify. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you might get some new stores and things like that, but it's a lot, you know, and, and then, you know, you've seen what's happened with, with some of the Facebook stuff now where they've moved their 
the advertising sort of revenue stream to serve you up clients and then they want you know a percentage of the transaction if it happens they i didn't know they do that that's genius so now there's a whole bunch of sellers on facebook if you like that that are now not paying for facebook advertising that but they're getting served up potential clients based on you know facebook's profiling of of account holders and then serve it up and if they if you if any of those people transact then facebook get 30 percent of it whatever the number is yeah so it's more like a amazon affiliate revenue than it is a pure cost per click ad sale that's genius have you ever heard this stat i don't have the right number something though like 40 percent of of vc money in the united states ends up back in google and facebook's wallets in terms of paid ads like that the economy of that is just wild yeah yeah i know it's sort of it's the yeah 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 where we sort of where we're we're in a sort of pivotal stage right now where where we we need sort of we actually need some regs to decide who's who can play where because we don't want banks you know becoming poachers again and at the same time we don't want these large tech companies like Google and Amazon and these others providing services to businesses online and then using their data to build their own business and take them out. Like, you know, there was an example with Allbirds. Allbirds are the shoe company. They, they you know, it's all eco, you know, carbon neutral. Merino wool. You, were, you, you have them? I don't have them, but I'm sure they're bumping, they're bumping the GDP of New Zealand. They were selling their product on Amazon. And then Amazon's like, oh, well, that, that looks no. interesting. So they go and produce their own house brand shoe. looks exactly the same, selling it for a fraction of the price, nowhere near the eco-friendliness. And, of course, the problem now is when you do search, you can search for all birds and you, get it, and you finally find them on page four. All the rest of it is Amazon ads for their version of it. So, you know, those sort of things, as, you know, identified by the European regulators, are going to have to get implemented and change because otherwise we're again stifling innovation because we're just handing everything to you know what was the bank now it's a big technology company yeah no totally agree it's going to be interesting it's just a yeah different it's you're running from the arms of one regulatory capture oligopoly to the other so one quick hit i'd love from you because i'm sure you'll have an answer what is there something in kind of fintech and bank innovation that you think is way overhyped like what would you short if you could as an idea right now there's there's all sorts of different avenues i think i think sort of consumer credit and all that sort of stuff i don't like um it's it's inflated like everybody you know wants to have a seems to want to use their their consumer base or their subscriber base to, to they haven't got anything else to sell them so hey let's sell them credit and so i know I, I think that's where the whole tech thing falls apart because then they are a bank you know and then i am worried about all this other stuff and so you know i guess you know i look at something like uber and you know i know there's been plenty of commentary about whether uber should become you know have a bank or become a bank or have have the ability to offer drivers credit and, and all these sort of things 
And I just think, you know, why would you do that? You've been in the regulatory crosshairs for your entire corporate existence. Why wouldn't you go and use it? You know, it, it, look, they're sitting on a ton of money every day from, from you know, people who are either riders or drivers. The, the float in there, why wouldn't you just add additional services? Pay your bill, you know, use use the network like they did with Uber Eats. Hey, we've got the drivers, now let's put all the restaurants and plug them in. It's a real service rather than sort of jump, thinking that these technology companies can jump into what is really banking, right? So I, I don't think of payments as bank banking, right? As soon as there's credit involved, there's reserves, there's, there's, there's who can you lend to and all of that stuff, right? Which, which is, is, as we discussed earlier, is the definition of a bank. Whereas just holding the funds and, and putting it in a, in a, within a system that I can have, get access to all these services, well, that's much better, right? But if I'm an Uber driver, right. so why can't I just pay the bills? I find that why do I have to just unload all of that bank, payday loan, put consumer credit, it's just predatory at the moment, and, it, and it's quite a ways from having decent rigs around it. No, to- totally makes sense. Uh, final fun question, not, not as serious. What's the uh, dumbest thing you've ever done that later turned out to be a good idea? I thought about this actually, meeting up with Lisa and investing in Hyperwallet as we did without any sort of real due diligence, I guess. I mean, when I say we did, right, we, we sort of, we, we had this thesis on how to sell it, how to sell the service. But I think as I've got a lot older and hopefully wiser, and worked with some of these other organizations, you know, just go, going through a few sales ourselves, going through due diligence, confirmatory due diligence, and understanding how little, or how much everyone else does versus how little I did. But it was sort of, I guess, you know, it felt right and it turned out great. So I think those, are, and it wasn't sort of, I don't necessarily think it was the worst thing I've ever done, but I did. I did have moments where, oh my God, what have I done? But I will say that, you know, the going into these things is, and, and not understanding the risks. Uh, but then, you know, with the twenty benefit of 2020 hindsight, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and, and it, what happened was our team really came together and, you know, did the 24 seven shifts to, to find alternative partner relationships that we could move our client funds on. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think it's a pretty good lesson for, I guess, uh, certainly venture investing and entrepreneurship in the sense of like, I think it's really easy if you start thinking about any of these things too much, it's pretty easy to find lots of reasons to not do anything ever, right? But, you know, being a little bit oblivious to the the risks is probably the only way to get yourself motivated to take some of these things on and get them done. Yeah, I, I do think that the one thing that people don't do enough when they look at these businesses is they don't get in, get on the sales call, get into the sales call and see what's actually happening. They sort of, they're looking at numbers and depending on whether it's been sort of venture funded or not and depending on where they are and their sort of, and their capital, you know, financing, I feel a, a, a one, one on one leg of it, the cynic in me says it's just a big, you know, big pyramid and, you know, big Ponzi scheme, you pump it up and then get your stuff out. And if it makes, 
if it makes it in the end, great. If it doesn't, well, you know, yet we, we haven't lost us. It's just a late investor's have. But when you get in, and, and when we, we haven't been, you know, in early enough in many of these things, but when you look at the, you know, the stuff I've looked at lately, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm wanting to get on sales calls like we did with Lisa and actually see how they go and what's, is, are we, you know, how do we compete with the others and not just, you've got to actually go and do your research and you've got to sit there in the room and hear the, see the response from the prospect because that's the only thing that's going to drive it. Well, Peter, thanks again for joining us today. That was amazing. Um, lots to think about as the role of banks and banking and uh, hopefully the regulation that governs them changes going forward into the future. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. If this is your first episode, I uh, want to remind you that you can subscribe to get all future episodes on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And uh, if you have any questions, want to learn more, want to be a guest, never hesitate to check us out at fispan.com, F-I-S-P-A-N.com. And we're looking forward to next time where our guest is David Pike, who is the head of APIs and new flows at EFT Paws in Australia. It's kind of their national debit clearing rail. And I know that that is also going to be a great conversation.